0: Well, good morning. That was weak. (laughs) Just say it. Good morning. There we go. Love you. Uh, My name is Ben Robertson. If we've not met, I would love to meet you. Um, I'm a campus minister with an organization called Reformed University Fellowship, which is the campus ministry of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. So um, if we've not met, I'd love to meet you. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, so you can go ahead and be turning there, starting with verse 18. It's a short, a short reading uh, today. Um, I just want to say before I read, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure and a delight for myself and my family, both to be part of this church, but also uh, for me to have the opportunity on, on occasion to, to preach and share God's word with you, so thank you for being a loving uh, and hospitable congregation to me. Um, So here we are, Luke chapter 13. I hear a few pages turning, but I think we're almost there. Luke 13, sorry, verse 18. And he, Jesus, said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches." And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven or yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your words. Thank you for your insight and knowledge that you shared as you cast your pearls before swine. And that is us. And yet, in your grace, you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts and minds to believe and hands and feet to follow after what you've commanded. But we need your grace desperately for that. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would bring about soft hearts and willing spirits so that we would be not only hearers of the word, but doers also. And we ask this in your name. Amen. In 1986, the number one grossing film was Top Gun. Remember Top Gun? So, this was it was great. It's awesome. Um, uh, coincidentally, uh, that same year, 1986, um, was the uh, number one year for naval recruitment in our nation's history. Um, and it's not a coincidence. Um, Of course, uh, the Navy, uh, you know, the pilots, we often think the Top Gun was Air Force. No, it was was the Navy. Um, And the Navy, I think they called uh, Don Draper or some other uh, marketing consultant, and they came up with this ad campaign where they would put booths outside of movie theaters and in malls and use the Top Gun language and logos and uh, young men fueled with highway to the danger zone, adrenaline and enthusiasm, walked by the booth and they saw a man who said, do you want to be Top Gun? And they said, yeah, I want to be Top Gun. Why would I not want to be Top Gun? Who doesn't want to be Top Gun? Um, And so they signed up and they joined the Navy. And I love that story. I love that uh, quirky fact of uh, American military history, uh, because I like to imagine the disillusionment of those young men on their first day of, (laughs) of basic training. Um, they walk in, and they're being yelled at by their superior officers, and the bunkhouse it smells horrible, and um, it's, of course, physically grueling, exhausting, almost torture, um, and they're thinking to themselves, you know, what did I get myself into? Where's the beach volleyball, right? Um, when do we get to fly inverted? Uh, where's my motorcycle? I thought they issued those. Um And I paid $150 for these Ray-Bans, and you won't even let me wear them. Like, why, uh, when do I get to be Top Gun? Um, But the truth is, uh, you and I, and, you know, some of you are in the Navy. You might have uh, joined up uh, that summer. Uh, Summer 86, you know, it was a big year for us. Um, But, you know, a lot of us feel that way about life more generally, don't we? We sort of go into life with these Top Gun expectations for the way things are going to be, and then we live and it doesn't work out that way. Um, we're celebrating our graduating seniors, um, and you probably visited William and Mary your senior year, seniors who are graduating, and you visited on a day like today, and you, you played a little beach volleyball, little wiffle ball with total strangers, and everyone was so happy, and they gave out free ice cream on the sunken gardens, and you just thought this is, this is heaven on earth, I'm coming here, and then you got here your freshman year, and it was lonely. Um, and it got weirdly cold and rainy in the winter, and then just sort of this schizophrenic weather, and... You didn't know what to do with yourself and it was harder to make friends than you thought it was. And um, you weren't sure where you were going and it didn't quite meet your expectations. Or, we don't just do that in college, we do it throughout life. Once I get the job that I want, once I meet the, the girl of my dreams or the man of my dreams or have the family or whatever your aspiration is, you place these Top Gun expectations on them and then the reality can't bear the weight of your expectation. And we do it in all sorts of things, but we do it about the church too, don't we? You read passages in the Bible about uh, the, the church' is a living stones built together and the peace and the harmony how good it is when brothers dwell together in unity and you join a church and you kind of have a harder time actually getting to know people or this or that and it's uncomfortable or your relationships aren't zipping like the way you wanted it to or the way they were in college and We do it about the church as an institution, as a community, as particular local churches, but we do it more generally about Christianity and the kingdom of God. And we sell Christianity often this way, that it will fix our problems, that things will be better, that we will be walking with Christ and in his kingdom, and it will be wonderful. Not just that our problems will be solved, but here's where it gets really interesting and that we we really experience um, on the college campus. Part of that. Top Gun expectation is this idea that when you join God's kingdom, you will be a part of changing the world, right? You can go and make a difference. You can change the world. And there's actually been a slew of Christian books over the last 10 years or so that have really been addressing some complacency that we've had in the American church in particular, maybe some laziness, maybe some creature comfort orientation, that is a helpful sort of critique. But they they have titles like Change the World or Radical or Don't Waste Your Life. And they have helpful and good insights, but they have become in many ways, as many other authors are pointing out, what they call the new legalism. That it's not enough to be a faithful believer doing your thing as best you can, but you also have to be doing something important. Something that's going to change the world in some way or another. I don't read a lot of blogs, but one that I try to follow pretty regularly. One author is um, Dr. Anthony Bradley. He's a professor at the King's College in New York City and was uh, uh, one of my professors in seminary before he went there. But Anthony writes this. What do phrases like world changer, make an impact, and make a difference really even mean? I have no idea. If you send a young adult, and again, he works with college students like I do, if you send a young adult on a mission to go make a difference, it's like sending them out to sea without a map or navigational equipment. A mission without a map does nothing but cause anxiety and stress. I see that very often. I've got to make a difference. What I do has to be important. Where do I go next? And this expectation that we have causes all sorts of fear and doubt and stress. Anthony goes on, I am left wondering why the commission to love is not enough for us to say to our young adults. The greatest commandment is to love God and love neighbor. And there is nothing more challenging and life-giving than that mission why do we need to tell young people to go make a difference? What Dr. Bradley is getting at is that we send a, we send a set these extra ideals, these lofty notions of what we're going to accomplish. If you think about it, go make a difference. One, how do you even measure that? Two, how do, how do you do it? And how do you know when it's done? Right? It's, it's confusing. It's, it's tough. Love is ambiguous, too. I'll give you that. You know, how do I know if I've loved well? Okay. But why do we give that command Go change the world. But then, in the process, end up overlooking the more basic and simple principles of Christ the basic realities of faith and grace and love that are very clear. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at in these two parables as well. What is the kingdom of God like? Jesus poses the question. He says it's like a mustard seed. It's like yeast, it's like leaven. We see two things in both of these illustrations that he uses about the kingdom. First, the kingdom is small. The kingdom is small, but second, it grows. The kingdom is small, and it grows. Well, first, it's small. Um, both of them, obviously, you know, you've seen the mustard seed, right? I would have brought one, but you wouldn't be able to see it, Right? It's this little speck, this tiny little seed, a tiny little nothing. Um, Same with yeast. You sprinkle some yeast on your countertop, a couple mustard seeds. If someone else walked into the room, what are they probably going to do? Either not even notice it, or if they do, brush it off the table and move on with more important things. Not only that, not only are they small, but they are spectacularly mundane metaphors. It's ordinary stuff. If you ask me to give an illustration, if you said, Ben, what is the kingdom of God like? I, get, I think it's something jazzy, right? It's something exciting. The kingdom of God is like, is like Hogwarts. It's this invisible magical kingdom that other people can't see, but you're ushered into it where you're given great powers and you will fight evil your entire life and have great friendship and a lifelong adventure of learning and do war against evil, and the greatest magic of all is self-sacrificial love, and that's how we're going to conquer evil and change the world, right? I mean, I think that's pretty good. I think it's a pretty good illustration. I think, uh, you know, the, that's what the kingdom of God is like, okay? In some ways, actually, kind of is, but not Jesus. What does he do? Because, see, Jesus isn't trying to sell you something like I am. Hey, what's the kingdom of God like? And he just sort of walks through the kitchen and opens the pantry and takes a look around. How about this mustard seed here for your garden? A little packet of yeast for your bread. The kingdom of God is like that. Extraordinary. Normal, everyday stuff. But see, we we tend to want it to be more, don't we? and pastors such as myself are, are guilty of this. We either want to do the thing that where we can see the big results and see the impact, see the change that we're making, or we say the ordinary stuff isn't what the kingdom of God is like, but the spiritual, pastory stuff, right? The Bible-y, prayer, churchy stuff is what the kingdom of God is like. Just a spiritual version. Um, a guy named Matt Redmond... Um, I once publicly referred to him as my friend, which was lying. Uh, we're not friends. We talked on the phone 11 years ago for about half an hour, and now we're Facebook friends. That's called An Acquaintance. An acquaintance of mine, a distant acquaintance, uh, Matt Redmond, wrote this wonderful little book uh, called The God of the Mundane. It's 150 pages long, it's $2.99 on Kindle. You could read it in a few hours, and it's delightful. It's wonderful. Um, I'm going to read sort of a long quote from it. He, he addresses this. I, When I read it last summer, it was convicting to me as a pastor. Um, He says this. Plumbers have trouble understanding why I don't worry much about water pressure. And veterinarians think that I should care more about animals. Potato farmers think I should eat more potatoes. And lawyers think I should understand the law better. And pastors think that everyone else is not passionate enough about their faith like they are. I know this because I'm a pastor. And I have been for years, My life revolves around studying the Bible, being at the church's meeting place, talking about theology, connecting all the dots for people, planning church events, and attending them and serving at them. It took me years to realize that this is my life as a pastor and not the life of everyone else. The life of everyone else is very different. It is full of all those things we are tempted to label as mundane in the spiritual stratosphere. Sure, every Christian has to deal with these things to a degree, but they are not the rhythm of their day-in and day-out lives as it is for a pastor. Of course, plumbers should care about the Bible and theology and what's going on at their church, and it is good for them to have a desire to serve their congregation, but a pastor does all these things because he is a pastor. It's his vocation. A plumber makes sure our pipes are working and our toilets are flushing. It is his vocation, his calling. But the problem is that sometimes we pastors tend to forget this. We forget our calling is different from the calling of those we teach and counsel. We push back against the effects of the fall through the ministry of the word, through counseling, preaching, studying, and leading. Plumbers push back the effects of the fall through fixing leaky pipes. Teachers do it through making sure children know how to count and read and write And bankers push against the fall with safes and loans, responsible loans. To small businesses, farmers with combines and turn rows, librarians with organized shelves full of wonder and adventure and beauty, baristas with coffee and muffins and smiles, cooks push back with duck l'orange, chicken massaman and pizza, homemakers with clean floors and changed diapers and home-cooked meals. Artists push back the fall with songs and paintings and pictures and stories. All of it is a pushing back of the fall itself. When we, who are subjects of the king, live out his rule and reign wherever we are, we push against the insurrection of sin with all of its corruption, lies, and ugliness. Do you hear him using the kingdom language? Subjects of the king submitting to his rule and reign, pushing back the effects of the fall in every little nook and cranny where we are. See, the problem is that we have made Christianity just another version of go make a difference and go change the world, by which we mean do something big, be extraordinary, be important, what Matt is saying in his book is that if God doesn't matter in the nitty-gritty, in the small, and the ordinary, then what difference does he make in anything else that's big? If he doesn't matter in your kitchen, why on earth would you think he matters on Capitol Hill? And it may be all these little insignificant moments and callings and lives are actually more than we realize in themselves. Now, he's not saying, and I'm not saying, and certainly Jesus is not saying, that we don't want to make a difference. Of course you want to make a difference. I mean, show me a mom who doesn't want her children to know that she, to say that she mattered in their life, (laughs) you know? Yeah, of course. We want to make a difference. We want to know that we've had an impact. Everything matters, though. It's not we're saying nothing matters, so who cares? But everything matters, the extraordinary and the mundane. And part of the beauty of the kingdom of God is in its smallness, Jesus is saying. Its secrecy. It's things you often would not even notice or think of. Ordinary monotony. But he tells us more in these two illustrations than that the kingdom of God is small. Yes, he says it's small and ordinary but it grows. It grows. The kingdom of God grows. The yeast permeates the entire lump of dough. It gets into everything. This small amount of thing permeates the other. The seed, of course, grows into a great tree. It grows into a plant. It gets bigger. A couple of things. One, in both cases with the leaven and the seed, They both have to be incorporated into something else in order to grow. Make sense? They both have to go into something else. Leaven into flower, seed into soil. See, the the kingdom of God is not a matter of leaving the world. It's not an escapism. It's actually entering into it, entering into the process and permeating it, thoroughly engaging the world around us, In every sort of job, calling, career, life, neighbor, neighborhood in the world. Thoroughly engaging it and growing in the midst of it in that context. Um, This is campers, but I gave it to them. Can you read that from where you are? It's kind of pretty small. This is RUF. That's the campus ministry I work for, Reformed University Fellowship. And I worked with a friend of mine who's a graphic designer a few years ago, and our logo is actually based on this first part of the parable, the mustard seed. If you can see from there, in, right in the middle, Reformed University Fellowship, there's the, the letter U. And what my friend did after we talked about kind of where I wanted to go with it, he turned the U into like a, a pot of soil in which a plant is growing. This little seedling, roots are pushing down, and a a beautiful blue sprout is coming up, just like the blue sprouts all around us that we see. Um, um, But the idea of it is that we want to see the kingdom of God grow, not outside the university or in contrast to the university, but within the university, where God has placed us. Just as we as a church want to be part of the kingdom of God growing in this community, where God has placed us. We're not against the university. We're not against Williamsburg. Oftentimes, you hear Christians talk in critiquing the culture, and it's sort of like we're standing in here, shaking our fist, "You culture, the evil university with the bad things people do and the wrong things people teach, and we need a good ministry there to fight that, to create an enclave within it to keep people safe." But Jesus is saying, "No. The seed has to enter the soil. That's where the growth will take place. The leaven has to enter into the flour." Um, in order to grow. In fact, um, have you ever, ever had a spoonful of flour without yeast? It's not very good. Like, you can make bread without yeast, but it's not very good. I mean, it's kind of, it's not the reason we like bread. If you're gluten-free, I'm really sorry about this whole, little, this whole sermon, really. It's the material. It's not me. Um, um, I'm just going to go with what Jesus said. Um. Ever had a spoonful of yeast with no flour? I hope not, right? Ooh. But when the two combine, like the, the, the sugars and the proteins and the interaction with the yeast and the flour, that is what makes the flaky bread. That's what makes it flavorful. That's what makes it something that we crave, even though our doctors are telling us to cut back on it, Right? The mustard seed, the seed grows. It becomes a great plant. And sometimes we could look at that half of the illustration and think, yeah, well, where's the, well, we want to see growth, right? Yeah, but think about the fastest growing plant that I know of is kudzu. It grows 18 inches a day, which is a lot. But imagine that you spent a day watching that. I mean, you, you wouldn't really be able to see it. And think about a tree. You sit and watch a tree grow. I, mean, I very often hear people say, students in particular that I minister to, they say, I don't really feel like I'm growing. You know. Well, my own kids have said that to me. If you've been here for more than six months, you know they're growing, right? We're We're growing. Um, The kingdom of God is, is growing, but it's not flashy. It's almost imperceptible. And yet there it is, working its way throughout the lump, the plant pushing down roots and green popping up, life springing out finally, as we finally are getting to enjoy the literal version of that finally here in Williamsburg. But Jesus goes on and he says that the plant grows up So that the birds of the air will make their nests in its branches. That's how big it's gotten. Birds who before could eat the seed, consume it completely, and it's gone. Now make their home there. That's an amazing idea that they come and they find shelter from the storm in the kingdom of God, which they once perhaps wanted to devour. And Jesus is actually alluding to both Ezekiel and the book of Daniel where this very same picture is given of birds of the air making their nests in the branches of the tree. And the tree is the people of God in those contexts. And here he applies it to the kingdom. And the birds are metaphors for foreign nations who at that point in Israel's history were perceived and thought of and were their enemies. And Ezekiel and Daniel are saying, but one day those birds will nest in your branches. And Jesus has said, that's what my kingdom is. And some of you know exactly what that's like because you remember very vividly being an enemy of God and his gospel and then finding your home there. And some of you can think of neighbors or friends or family members who right now seem like a bird that wants to devour the seed but may yet one day make his or her home in the branches of God's kingdom And find shelter from the storm. And that is what Jesus has done and is doing through his kingdom. But what to me is even more beautiful is that Jesus himself is the very embodiment of these two parables. And here's what I mean. Jesus, the God of the universe. I know we just celebrated Easter, but I want to rewind to Christmas for a moment. In his incarnation, the very centerpiece of our faith in many ways, God became small. almost imperceptible. A Jewish peasant in the Middle East. The God of the universe there. And like the seed, he enters into this world. And like the seed that must die in order for the growth to occur, he dies and rises again so that through his death we might have life, so that through him we might have shelter from the storm, and so his spirit could go out and permeate the entire globe as he has. And if you think about the center of our religion, this Jewish man, what could seem more small or more insignificant when you think about the history of the world, when you really rewind and look at it through the eyes of the original people who are there and around and seeing what happened, the original hearers of the gospel? Uh, A few years back, a man named Jeffrey Lancaster came to RUF staff training and was teaching the campus ministers. I go there twice a year. A couple years back, he gave a a seminar entitled, How to Be a Ministry Rockstar. And uh, he was playing on our ambition, right? Sort of making fun of us for it. Of course, this idea that we all want to be the next John Piper or Tim Keller, pick your famous Christian guy. And uh, he was saying to us about the irony of wanting to be great, wanting to be important, wanting to be a big deal in light of the gospel. And he said this, I'll never forget it. He said, men, a naked Jewish man nailed to a Roman cross 2,000 years ago is your fastball. And you want to be rock stars. Think about how ridiculous that is. One, the desire to be a big deal. But two, the ridiculousness of the gospel. Have you appreciated that in a while? It's absurd. That's all we got. That's our story. That's our song. That's our deal. A crucified and risen Lord. And yet, 2,000 years later, we could argue about denominations and who's in and who's out and whatever. Okay? Big statistic. But about 2 billion people say that's where I make my nest. About a third of the globe's population. And what is more remarkable, even just in the sheer numbers, is the reality that of all the major world religions, Christianity is the one that is not strongly and significantly tied to a particular region, ethnicity, or language. All the other major world religions have some sort of base camp where they started and they've pretty much stayed with that culture and people. Stop and think them through. But Christianity's been everywhere. It's not a Western religion. It's not a Middle Eastern religion. It's not a Chinese religion. It's not an African religion. It's a global religion. Why? Because the mustard seed has grown. Because the leaven has very ordinarily and plainly worked its way around the lump. And God continues to do just that through the absurd, ridiculous, insignificant message of the cross. The foolishness, Paul calls it and the ordinary acts of love of people like you huddled together on a Sunday morning in a little church in a little town on the east coast of the United States. Also called the ends of the earth to the original authors of the Bible. Life breaks in and flavor breaks out and the kingdom of God comes. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your kingdom is beautiful. Thank you for allowing us to be part of it. Thank you for your own humility that you came down and became small and gave of yourself so that we might know you and so that we might join into your kingdom and be a part of it. We are grateful, Lord. We pray that you would continue to push forward. Would you be willing to use us in small ways and big, in significant and insignificant, would you teach us, Lord, to love others as you have loved us? We ask this in Christ's name.